I want to direct your attention. Let's go to God's Word together. Can we do that? Aren't you grateful for the living Word of God? Amen. Folks, make no mistake, this is a living document. His Word is alive. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, I want to direct your attention to Acts this morning, the book of Acts, chapter number 4, verse number 13. They'll put it on the screen. You may be looking it up, but I want you to notice two words in this verse of Scripture, Acts 4, 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I want to speak to you about ordinary people. Join me and let's pray. Father, I ask you to speak to us, inspire us, motivate us, nudge us, encourage us to be used of you because the only thing you use is people, your creation, those you created to fulfill your purpose in the earth. We ask you, Lord God, that you would help us to not be insensitive to what you might be nudging us toward because all through history you've taken ordinary people and ordinary things and done extraordinary things. And we're believing you for that in our city, in our community, through our church. In the name of Jesus. And everybody that agreed says amen to that. Amen. I want to remind you last week a key verse we talked about. It was in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And again, the first pages of the book of Acts are the beginning, the birth of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, of which we are still a part of today. And that verse was that all the believers devoted themselves. Everybody say, all the believers. And we see there from that point on, God began to grow his church, pull, bring people into his kingdom through the efforts of these ordinary people. In the third chapter, the next chapter, we see a miracle take place where one day Peter and John were going up to the temple to worship at the hour of prayer. The Bible says there was a lame man there at the gate begging. And as they walked by, it's in Acts chapter 3, as they walked by and he begged for alms, Peter looked at him and said, I do not have any silver and gold, but what I do have I give unto you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He said, I don't have a lot of money. I'm not a man of wealth, but there is something I have that can make a difference in your life, and that is Jesus. How many of you are glad you got Jesus with you, Jesus in you, Jesus to work through you? We're really no different than this guy. He was an ordinary man, Simon Peter. You look on then in chapter 4, the verse that I read, what happened between the event in chapter 3 and what we read in chapter 4 is the religious leaders of the day, those who would have been schooled and highly educated, got upset about this miracle and began to threaten these ordinary men, making note they weren't taught in the religious laws, to not be doing what they were doing and basically told them to quit preaching in the name of Jesus. And of course, you can read all through the scripture that they were not very successful in getting that to happen because they continued to proclaim the name of the Lord. And I want to read again that verse of scripture that I started with, and I want you to just notice that it says they were so ordinary when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, courage motivated them to step out and do something that within themselves they would not do, and a great miracle happened. These men, through whom God worked, were very ordinary. The Bible does not tell us the occupation of all 12 of the disciples that Jesus called. But of the ones that the scripture does tell us what their occupation was, it's very obvious they were very ordinary men. The guy that just performed this great miracle, Simon Peter, was a fisherman by trade. That's what he did for a living. 
He wasn't one of the religious priests. He wasn't part of the religious hierarchy. He was an ordinary man that went about his day-to-day business doing his job. He had a brother named Andrew. The Bible says Andrew, a disciple of Jesus and an apostle of the Lord, was also an ordinary man, had a fishing business with his brother. Two others of them, James and John, actually the other guy that went there with Peter on the day of this miracle, both of them were fishermen. They fished for a living. That's what they did. These were ordinary men with ordinary jobs. A couple of the others that are mentioned, something that they did or involved in that we have record of, one was Matthew. Matthew, who was, the Bible says, a tax collector. Now, today we might say, oh, he worked for the IRS, kind of like that, except in that day they're empowered to not only uh, collect the taxes, they could extort from people what they wanted. So he had really kind of a colorful resume. And then the other one was Simon. He's called Simon the Zealot. Zealots really, uh, was being a zealot was not really necessarily a profession as much as it was simply that. These people spent their lives engaged in politics and anarchy, attempting to overthrow the Roman government. So here we have a picture of some pretty ordinary men that made themselves available to God, and because these ordinary men had the courage to step forward, God did extraordinary things. May I submit to you, church, God's never changed his method, never changed his pattern, never changed his way. God uses ordinary people. I like Danny Bell Hall singing of that song, but the reason I wanted it played today was it's for us to walk out of here realizing God uses people just like you and just like me. May I point out to you that these people did not have a job like me? They had a job like you? Are you all out there? They had a job like, say, just like us. Look at your neighbor and say, just like us. When you walk out these doors today, you're going to walk into the mission field. This is not it. It is out there. And he wants his people that live ordinary lives, doing ordinary things, going about their daily routine to make a difference in this world. Now, you may be saying, how can I make a difference? Or uh, what about my life? Are you willing to let God take you out of the status quo? Are you willing to let God do something unexpected in you and through you? Are you open to the possibility that he might bless you and use you in an extraordinary way? I doubt Peter and John had any idea when they got up and ate their oatmeal that morning what was going to happen a few hours later when they went to the hour of prayer. They were going about their ordinary day and then all of a sudden, maybe he stopped and got a chili coney on the way. I don't know what happened. But they went there simply to pray at the hour of prayer and something extraordinary happened. Who says God cannot use you in a dramatic way, a wholly, completely unexpected way? Who says he can't lead you into a season of ministry or something that you never dreamed of? Who says he can't? I ask you, what's the limiting factor? Is God the limiting factor or are we the limiting factor? Or are we capable of closing our hearts to what God might want to do in and through us? Sometimes the enemy makes us feel like what we contribute makes no difference, and that is so untrue. Sometimes he makes us feel like we are so insignificant, and that is so untrue. There may be some young adults in our church that say, you know, man, I just really haven't gotten on track. I don't feel like I have really made a a difference yet. Did you know that in the days of Jesus... By the time he was age 30, there's only two references to Jesus in the entirety of the Scripture 
before he turned 30? Only two of them. Now, the age 30 in that day was an older 30 than is today. The lifespan of man back then was not as long as the lifespan as it is today. So it would be even more advanced or more protracted. But at the age of 30, here's the Son of God, the Savior of mankind, who came into the world, but by the age of 30, he lived such an, extra, such an ordinary, nondescript life. There's only two references of him in the Bible before the age of 30, and this is Jesus. You know what one of them was? The Bible says he was circumcised on the eighth day. That's pretty non-eventful unless you're the one having it done to you, and I'll just move on. Every Jewish male had that done. He was no different than any other male Jewish baby. That's one of the two references of Jesus before the age 30. The only other one is he got lost and separated from his parents in a big crowd in Jerusalem for a day which should bring some comfort to some mother that just because you lost your child for 15 minutes in Target does not disqualify you from sainthood. Aren't you glad for that? That's the only two references to Jesus in the Bible before he turned the age 30. But would you say to me that he was very nondescript? Would you say to me his life did not make a difference? What I'm trying to get you to see is he lived a very ordinary life to a degree too. But when it was God's moment and when it was God's time, he was available and he made the biggest difference this world has ever known. Yes, he was the son of God, but so was the, so, uh, we got John and we got uh, James and we got Peter here. They were just nondescript men, ordinary men, but what a difference they made in the world. I ask you, please, to embrace this concept this month, but not just for December, that we are called to make a difference in this world. Everybody say out loud, we are difference makers. I want to tell you the story of a very ordinary man named David Webb. Pam and I met him about 25 or so years ago. In the mid-90s, Pam and I were living in the Ukraine, and we were living there to work with nationals in the early days of the Soviet Union to plant uh, of an opening for us to plant churches. And most of our church, you all know that, but uh, this was an experience that really stuck in my mind regarding this man. David came the first time uh, on one of our teams. We would host teams coming into Ukraine. We'd take them into cities and do crusades. And at that time, you could go into schools and do assemblies. So we'd take the Book of Hope, which is a Gospels in chronological order written for students, and we could give them in the schools. At that point, even in a lot of schools, you could pray with kids and everything. It was just a real window of opportunity there that we were allowed to do this. And so David came on more than one of these teams. David was a very ordinary man. In fact, he showed up walking on a cane. He was not a young man. And uh, he, he showed up walking on a cane, but he was very active, part of our teams every day. And we were in a city called Periyoslav, and we were ministering in that whole region. And we had several pastors who were local by this point working with us. And we had hit schools and then done crusades at night. We'd done it for several days. It was the last morning, last day. And the last day, it was a cloudy, cold day, and I can still see it like it happened yesterday. One of the pastors said, would anybody be willing to take a trip out to a little village that's quite a ways away, I don't remember how far, but it was miles and miles, and go visit this little village school I know about? And instantly, David said, I will, Bob and I will go. And Bob was his friend who had traveled with him, two older men. And so we quickly loaded up a car. We would fill it with books, send an interpreter with them. And I remember as David got in the car, he hollered out, somebody call the school and tell them we're coming so they won't be surprised. And I remember the pastor said, we can't call them 
They don't have a phone at that school. Just show up. They'll be thrilled because they've never seen an American. So off they went. When David came back, he told a different story than what the pastor said he would experience. He said, when we pulled up in front of that school, it was cold and cloudy. And I looked, and there standing on the steps of the school was a woman looking like this. And she was as mad as she could be. And he said, I got out of the car, and Bob got out of the car, and we said hello, walked up to her and greeted her. And he said she was not friendly. She was very stern. He said, and we always did this. We took gifts for the administrators of the schools. And so he said, I handed her a gift. I handed her assistant who was standing there a gift, thinking that would melt their heart. It didn't melt anything. She was just as cold. He said she wasn't even going to let us into the school, wasn't going to let us into her office. Kept talking to her. And David Webb is the type of man who never met a stranger. He could sell snowballs in Alaska. He was just that type of a person. But he said, I wasn't getting anywhere. He said, I did fi finally, through giving away some gifts, I got myself in the building and into her office. And if I recall correctly, he said she didn't even invite him to sit down. And he had a big bag of gifts. He said, I had given away everything I knew that I had to give. And I was standing there thinking that our mission was going to be incomplete. We weren't going to be able to do it. Our goal was to get the word of God to the students. That was the goal. And he said, she wasn't going to let us. And so he said, I realized we weren't going to make it. And so he said to her, man, before I leave, I'd like to share one more gift with you. And he reached down into the bottom of a big black bag and he pulled out two $5 soccer balls. And when he pulled those soccer balls out, he said, I'd like to leave these with you for your kids to have to play with at recess. And he said, when I said that and handed her a soccer ball, he said, she just stared at me for a moment. And then as she stood there staring, he said, big giant tears began to well up in her eyes and began to flow down her cheeks. And she said, David, please sit down. She said, I've not been very nice to you. And he said, that was an understatement. But he said, she, I've not been very nice to you. And she said, there's a reason why. She said, I'm a complete atheist, and I don't want you in this school. She said, do you think I don't know what's in the trunk of that car? Do you think people in this county haven't been talking? Teachers in, in this community haven't been talking. We've heard what you've been doing in Periosla. I know what's in that car. I'm a complete atheist, and I don't want those kids having those books. But she said, what you do not know is this. She said, look around at this school, how dilapidated it is. And at that point, there was extreme need there. And she said to him, to this point this school year, our school has not received one penny, one grievance as their currency, not one grievance from the government. We've not received a dollar. She said, we've not received a pencil. She said, our teachers have not been paid this entire school year yet. They keep promising it's coming. They haven't been paid. But she said, they keep coming and showing up to work because they're dedicated people and they love our children, but we are in dire need. And she said, what you do not know is just a couple of days ago, I stood here right in this office, and I looked out that window onto that playground. And David said you could look out and see just an old broken down bunch of old stuff. It was a dilapidated yard. And he said, she said, I stood here at this window, and I looked out that window, and although I am a complete atheist, David, she said, a couple of days ago, I said this. I said, God, if you do exist, I'd just love for our kids to have a soccer ball to play with at recess. And two days later, an American from halfway around the world walks in with not one soccer ball, but two soccer balls. She said, go get your books and give them to every kid that wants one. Are you telling me God doesn't use ordinary people? Ordinary people. 
and a $5 soccer ball to turn an atheist's hearts toward God. Come on, say it with me. God uses ordinary people. Tell you another one's in the Bible. A lot of you have read the story of Ruth. Now, if you're new to reading the Bible, it's a book in the Bible, kind of over toward the front of your Bible. In the Old Testament, it's a true story, the story of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite who married a Jewish guy. Another Moabite girl married his brother. There was a woman named Naomi, the mother of these boys they married. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, they were Jews, died. Then the two sons died. So this woman, Naomi, has lost her husband and her two sons. No doubt her heart was devastated, but she made a decision after her sons died that she released these Moabite girls to go back to their land, to go back to their families. And the two girls' names were Ruth and Orpah. Orpah made the decision, no doubt uh, with tears in her eyes. She said, okay, I'm going to go back. I love you, but I'm going to go back. And at that moment with that decision, Orpah went back to Moab and walked out of the pages of Scripture never to be heard from again. The other girl had the same opportunity and made a decision. She said, I'm going to stay with you, and wherever you go, I, I will go. In fact, in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16, she put it this way. Entreat me not to leave you. Or in other words, don't make me leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. On that simple decision to follow the God of Israel, no matter where he led her, no matter what happened to her, from that point forward, there were things that happened that Ruth's life began to flower. I want you to be mindful of the fact that this girl wound up being in the lineage of Jesus Christ. There are only five women listed in the Bible in the lineage of Jesus Christ, and this Moabite girl, Ruth, is one of them. She was the great-grandmother of King David, and she became an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ, all because, though she was a very, to that point, ordinary, nondescript person in the pages of history, she made a decision to make God her Lord, and she would do with her life whatever he said to do. And on the basis of that simple decision to follow the God of Israel and make her life available to him, that no matter where he led or what he said, she knew that she would, could put her, her confidence and her trust in him and leave the rest up to God. Before the reward comes the commitment. You're never going to see God do anything dynamic in your life without the commitment. Get an amen quite as loud, but that's just the truth. We have to, it has to be an issue of the heart. In my heart, I make a decision that, Lord, yeah, I might be ordinary, but because you're on the inside of me, I'm not so ordinary. I got the greater one on the inside of me. And most of you know the rest of the story of Ruth. They came back to the homeland of Naomi, and she went out to work in the field of a man named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's departed husband. And out there in that field, Boaz got word of it, of who she was. And he began to tell his workers, leave a little handfuls on purpose for that girl, that Moabite girl. You see, the Jews might would have tended to look down upon her as a foreigner and a stranger. But he said, leave a little bit of handfuls on purpose. And she began to glean the corners of his field. If you go into the Old Testament, that's what foreigners were allowed to do. But the meat was preserved for the Jews. And then it came to a point that Boaz began to bless. 
bless her. Long story short, he ends up marrying her and becoming what the scripture calls her kinsman redeemer. And the Bible shows us that through this, uh, though the Bible says that that she happened upon the field of Boaz is how it puts it. Happened upon. Something in me tells me it wasn't just happenstance. It wasn't just an occurrence. But there was a God that made something extraordinary begin to happen because an ordinary Moabite girl began to say, God, I am available to you. And if you make that kind of a commitment in your heart, I got a sneaking feeling that God is able to start making some extraordinary things happen in your life. Through the years, I've discovered that when a person's heart is inclined toward God, he will see to it that your feet end up walking in the pathway he plans for you. A lot of people sit around and say, oh, I just wish I knew what the will of God was. Just incline your heart toward him, and I promise you, he'll see to it that your feet get on that path. It might be some dry valleys you have to walk through. It might be some rocky hills you have to get over you. But I promise you there's a God in heaven, the God of Israel I'm reading about. He will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. He will take your path and make it extraordinary for his purpose. You can get good counsel. You can read good books. You can diagram your life on a kitchen table. But ultimately, the answer lies within our heart. Is my heart after God. When your heart is totally given over to follow Christ, to walk in his ways, you can't miss the plan of God and the outworking of it if you commit yourself to him. I can't help but notice that Ruth found her way and her future while she was in a harvest field. She found her way and her future while she was in a harvest field. And that is a biblical term that is often used and we often think about just reaching the lost. But literally, the, in my opinion, the biblical term harvest is implying people who help people, people who touch people, people who love people, people who serve people, people who give of themselves to others, including winning people through the love of God. That's the harvest. When you just set yourself to be a person, I'm going to touch somebody today. I'm going to do something good today. I'm going to bless somebody's life today. But how many times, church, do we get up and we get on the hamster wheel of life and we put in our eight hours at work and click off another 24 hours and the whole day has been lived not thinking about anybody else, might just be thought about getting through the day or whatever. God wants us to live with a consciousness that we were created to make a difference. God takes ordinary people and takes ordinary things like a soccer ball and makes a difference in the lives of people. Ruth's life says to you and to me to get out of ourselves, commit ourselves to God, and see where God might want to make a difference through us. Catch this, in the world. Everybody say in the world. Now I'm going to get practical this morning. Don't expect a lot of amens from here on. But I want to talk about what that looks like. If you want to make a difference in the world, you're going to have to get outside of some of your religious stuff. You know what? You might want to think about even losing some of your Christianese lingo. Because you're not going to be relevant to the world. You can talk that all to one another. 
but please drop it when you get among the world because they have no idea what you're talking about. I'm going to give you an example. You might as well say amen on this because I'm going to prove it to you. <laughs> Happened to me right here about three weeks ago. Granddaughter Ella, nine years old. Now, I can tell you Ella Joy knows her Savior, Jesus Christ. She knows she's born again. She knows what that means. And her mom and daddy's had her in church just about every time the church doors open her nine years. She knows all the lingo already, a lot of it that we know. So we're over here in service, and sometimes she comes in for one service because they're here from like 7.15 in the morning on, so go to children's service one, and sometimes she and sometimes Winston will come in here and worship with us, and sometimes they stay in the whole service. We're worshiping. There's a song. It's an elevation song called Resurrecting, and it's got a line in it, God robbed the grave. How many of you understand what that means, God robbed the grave? You got it, don't you? Guess what? You're about the only ones. Because out there, they wouldn't know what you were talking about, lingo like that. We get it in a Christian song. We're just worshiping along, singing. All of a sudden, Ella turns and looks at me. They're going to show you a picture. It was a picture similar to this. This is Ella. About like that. Not quite that extreme. She looks at me with a stark look on her face like, God robbed? Why would God rob? Poppy. Why would God rob? Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought of that? No, you're just singing along because you know what it means. But if you go outside these doors using lingo like that, you're not going to be relevant to the world and have the impact God wants you to have. I know I'm hitting some of you coming. Kind of, I do it too. I was raised in it. You're looking at a fifth-generation Pentecostal right here. My great-great-grandma was a Pentecostal church planter. I know all the lingo. I know the brother this, the sister that. I know all that stuff. My father was raised in it. My father was, uh, had a, a pretty high-level job, had a lot of people in He's in management with a large oil corporation. And I'll never forget as a kid here, my dad talk about there was a man that our family knew. He was, he was a church guy. He was a Pentecostal and raised in an environment where everybody called you brother and sister. How, how, many, how many was raised in that? You was raised in that. Brother this, brother that. Brother John, sister Mary. My dad would cringe, he would say, because where my dad's office sat, he had a lot of guys that worked for him, and they were, a bunch of them were a bunch of pagans and heathens. He said, this man come running up the stairs. He'd, I could hear him coming, and he'd think, oh, no, because he'd holler out where everybody could hear it. Brother King, you've got the victory today. And my dad wanted to crawl under his desk. You know why? Because the rest of those people had no idea what he was talking about. It made it very hard then for this man to be relevant to them at a point that they could relate. You know, we have some cliches we use that we might want to think about sometime. Y'all still love me? Good, because I'm going to preach it anyway. And you want to go to heaven, you have to love me. You have to like me, but you've got to love me. Listen to this verse, Colossians chapter 4. Want everybody to see this verse? Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. So I think we ought to ask ourselves, Lord, how do I live wisely? I sit here looking out at Karen Howard. She just got, uh, holler out, what, what is it again? president of the executive women in Texas government. You see what I'm saying? Karen is a strong believer. We can be in the world, not of the world, but in the world and make a difference. Can you say amen if you agree with that? One thing we say sometime is 
Let go and let God. Let go and let God. At its best, that phrase highlights the value of surrender to God. God is God and you're not. So on that level, I agree with that. So we can lay down our resume and say, not me, him. But all too often, that phrase is used as a symbol of Christianity to be not a cross, but a couch. It's subtly used to put the brakes on striving, on not striving and not working, and put the brakes on effort. Just let go and let God. Let what be will be. The Christian life can sometimes be, be grueling. If not, you know, when Paul reflected on the Christian life, he didn't reflect on sunsets and naps. He reflected on soldiers, on athletes, on farmers. All three of those have to work real hard, blood, sweat, and tears to get where they get. Would you agree with that? He talks about running tracks and boxing rings. That's his analogy in his epistles. It's not a couch, it's a cross. J.I. Packer put it this way, the Christian's motto should not be let go and let God. It should be trust God and get going. Everybody say trust God and get going. I'm going to have a little fun with this. I'm going to give you a couple more. We say God will not give you more than you can handle. Now for you, amen, think about it. God will not give you more than you can handle. In a culture that tells us that we can be anything we desire. This can be a, a motivational slogan to encourage and to reassure that life won't be too hard. But the problem, however, is that God will give you more than you can handle. He'll do it to make you lean on Him. He'll do it because He loves you. The good news is, not that God won't give us more than we can handle. It's that he won't give us more than he can handle. Aren't you glad you got a God that can handle anything that gets thrown our way? You see how sometimes we get into these little cliches and sayings and if we're not careful, we need to be careful where we use them, how we think about them because he wants us to live wisely among those who are not believers. Why? He's got one goal in mind, period that all should come to know him. And guess what? The only Jesus a lot of people out in the world is, are going to see is a J Jesus that is seen through you and through me. There's one more, and I'll quit. Everybody says, thank you, Jesus. thought he was going to get on my favorite one. God helps those who helps, help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. I'm not aware of a statement more commonly misidentified as a Bible verse than that, other than maybe that he cast our sins in the sea of forgetfulness. That's not in the Bible either. It says he cast them in the depths of the sea. Another verse says he does forget. But there's not a verse that says he cast your sins in the depths of the sea or the sea of forgetfulness. This God helps those who help themselves, not a Bible verse. It, it originated from Benjamin Franklin. That might be the best news you'll hear today. And this might be a fine summary of the teaching of other religions. But the entirety of the Christian message hinges on what Charles Spurgeon once said. He put it this way. God helps those who cannot 
help themselves. He helps those who humble themselves, who repent and rely on Jesus Christ alone. For you see, if God only helps those who help themselves, we're sunk. If he only helps those who help themselves, like the old Indian said, you up a creek without a paddle. But he didn't come from moral standouts. Jesus came from moral failures. He came for people who couldn't help themselves. He came for people who had no other option. People like you, people like me. He came for us. And the good news, he came for all of us. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how you've lived, no matter how bad it is. You know, I've had people tell me, yeah, but Jim, I, I, I did this. And my answer is, so what? Yeah, I realize it might have had some effect on some bearing and some relationships on this earth, etc. <laughs> but it has no bearing on what Jesus came to do for us. Jesus didn't come from moral standouts. He came from moral failures. A reminder of the story, and I'll end with this, in Matthew chapter 9. They may put some of these verses up. I don't know. But I started out talking about these common men, Matthew, tax collector, James, John, Peter, Andrew, fisherman, Simon, who was an anarchist. Matthew wrote this in chapter 9. The scripture says this of Matthew. Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples. This is Matthew 9, verse 10. Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Now, I want you to think about this statement. If your Christian experience is just to live your life in your little Christian commune, you're not following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read this again. Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home. Who was Matthew? He was an extortioning tax collector, despised by the Jews. You can read it yourself in history. You can read it in the pages of Scripture, actually, I believe. But Matthew invited Jesus to his home. Matthew invited other people like him. Notice the Scripture says and other disreputable sinners. Notice the next line. I'm going slowly, intentionally. I want you to get this concept. But when the Pharisees saw this, you know who the Pharisees were? They were the people that said, oh, you should pray this way. You should talk this way. You getting my point? They had a standard that, that they thought determined whether or not you were real spiritual or not. And I think Jesus is showing us that don't have a whole lot to do with it. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, catch this, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to these religious people. I think he might have been saying, now get out of here and let me have dinner with these guys. Now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy and not offer sacrifices. I don't care about all your religious exercises. I want you to show mercy for I've come 
to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. May we all follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm better than no one. Would you agree with that? I'm nothing but a sinner who has been redeemed and saved by the precious grace of God. They would have thought I was scum and called me scum, I guess, at one point. Might still would have. I do not know. The bottom line is that doesn't matter what man says of you. What matters is what God says of you. You know what Jesus was saying by sitting at that table with these guys? He said, these guys are valuable. These guys are important. I'm here to make a difference in their lives. He was saying, you guys have studied it long enough. You ought to know better. Go back and study your scriptures you keep going over. You're being judgmental toward these people. But I didn't come for the well people. I came for the people that need healing and need wholeness. And my friend, that was all of us. Would you agree? Everybody say, but such was I. But thank God for his grace. Thank God for his mercy. Thank God for the blood of Jesus. Did I ever tell you about my great-grandma when she died? Did I ever tell you this story? My great-grandma, this just pops in my mind. I was real close to my great-granny. It was her mom that started that church I was telling you about. On the day she died, I was with her. I went and got my dad at work, and I went across town with him to the home of my great-granny's only living sibling, and there were several of them. They were all gone by that point but one. That was my great-aunt. I preached her funeral at the age of 105, but at this point, she was, I guess, in her 90s, and she was legally blind but lived alone. Perhaps she'd be probably in the top three of people, uh, of godly people that I've ever been around in my life on a regular basis. This, this aunt, her name was Arta Keener. We called her Aunt Art. I'll never forget, we knocked on her door. My dad's with me. We stepped inside the door. Now, she's legally blind in her own home, living in her own home, but legally blind. My dad said, Granny, we just came to tell you that, or Auntie, we just came to tell you that Granny just went to be with the Lord. And at that moment, she's just been told her last living sibling has died. I stand here today. I, I see our friend Gene. His mother went to heaven on Friday. The service will be next weekend, right, Gene, Louisiana? So pray for this family. But as my dad said that to my great aunt, she stood there for a moment. She's just been told my last living sibling just died. She turned around, and though legally blind, she walked away from us. And I just stood there watching this, and she started pacing back and forth through her living room and dining room. And here's the only thing she said. When just told her only sibling, living sibling died, thank God for the blood of Jesus. Thank God for the blood of Jesus. Thank God for the blood of Jesus. And she said it several times in the first two or three. I thought, well, that's kind of strange. I was a young guy. But I tell you, about the fourth time around, you start to feel like something in that room. You're going to have church all of a sudden. The presence of the Lord, I began to feel in that room. Because you know what she was doing? He said, if I'm exalted, I'm going to be in your presence in your midst. She was glorifying him. She was saying, my sister is no longer in that pain-ridden, emaciated body, suffering the pain she did in her final days. Today, now, she's whole in the presence of God, more alive than she ever was because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Come on, church. Get up on your feet and let's give him praise this morning. Can we do it? Lift your voice and give him praise. Come on, lift your voice to God and say, Thank you, God, for the blood of Jesus. Thank you, God, for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us, that washes us, that redeems us. Thank you, Lord God, for the blood of Jesus. I magnify your name, Lord. I magnify your name, O oh Lord. 
May I remind you of what I said a couple of minutes ago that God didn't come for moral standouts. He came for those who'd failed morally. Every head bowed, please, every eye closed. If you're here today or you're watching online and you say, I know that really right now I've made some moral decisions. I've made some decisions in my life I shouldn't have made that violates what God wants. I've sinned against Him and I'm in need of His forgiveness today. The beautiful news is Psalm 86.5 puts it this way. God is ready to forgive. That means right now, God is ready to forgive. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, He stands ready right now. It's not a process you have to go through. There's not three steps you have to take. If you believe and you know you've sinned against God and you want to invite Him into your life, all you have to do is turn your heart toward Him. Remember I said in the message, it's a matter of heart is where it's at. Is your heart open to Him? John the Revelator said, He stands at the door of your heart and He knocks. Will you open it to Him? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Are you here or watching online? You say, I, I'm opening my heart to Him right now. I've sinned against God. I, I'm not where I need to be. I'm not right with God. And I know it. I know it. But I believe Jesus came for people like me and you, for all of us. And I want to invite him in. Would you raise your hand? I want to pray with you. Just slip it up. Thank you, sir. May God bless you for your honesty. God bless you, young lady. God bless you, young lady. Yes, ma'am. You just slip your hand up to God and say, Lord God, I need you today. I need you today. The Bible says that all have sinned and need a Savior. We always need him as our Lord and Savior. But today you're saying, I need to invite him in. If you raised your hand, would you pray this out loud? And it is important that you confess him with your mouth according to the book of Romans. Confess Jesus Christ as your personal Lord, your personal Savior. If you're watching online, pray it with us. If that's you, you're saying, I need Jesus Christ in my heart and in my life. Everyone in this room, pray it out loud with me, will you please? I come today with an open heart. Asking you, Lord God, to forgive me of all my sins. I believe Jesus, your son, died on the cross and rose from the grave with the power to forgive all my sin. I'm sorry. I believe and I confess that Jesus Christ is my Savior and my Lord. Your word is true. It does not lie. I am forgiven and I'm a child of God. I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Now, come on one more time. Thank you. You can pray.